breakfast cereal, except for instead of like the crunch berries in the Captain Crunch, it's got like meth crystals in it. Mm, okay, it, 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 I, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah, that that that's what it feels like. like a wild this Saturday morning. Yeah, very. Just yeah, letting it rip. Rainbows and balloons. Then you take your uppers. Uh, you got horseshoes. I should have used. You know what? I should have saved Lucky balloons. Yeah, yeah. yeah, horseshoes, rainbows. I've got pots some, of gold. I've got horseshoes. Mushrooms. Two for twenty, buddy. Peyote. Yeah. I should have saved the balloon joke for a joke about smuggling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get what you're saying, though. Yeah, it's a breakfast cereal for sure, but there's dangers abound. There, yeah, for sure, for sure. So hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We talk about the films you'll never discuss in film space. Of course, we continue with Dalton's thirty. Uh, 30 for 90. 30. I, I, Arthur started calling it my house of horrors. That's probably better. That's probably better, It's a yes. little snappier. These punchier. are movies selected by Dalton for our Shocktober marathon, but they all must occur before his birth that we're celebrating this month um, as he is uh, turning 30. And we are officially uh, a little peek behind the veil here for you, listener. We are actually in October for this episode, finally, and the mood's different, I feel like. Although it's a nice, sunny nice day. summer it's day. It's nice and yeah. sunny today, but hey, yeah. earlier this week it was... Beautiful. Very spooky. Um, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Oh, and I'm still Dalton, the birthday boy of whom you've heard. And if you're uh, tuning in for the very first time, we are talking about House Sue House. House uh, from 1977. 1977. Uh, so not the other one that you might sometimes see with the uh, disembodied hand ringing the doorbell mm. from the 80s. Or yeah. the television program starring Hugh Laurie uh, where he's a, a jerk. A jerk. Yeah. He's Sherlock Holmes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A jerk, a jerk. like we said. Uh, but no, not those things. This thing. Uh, the Japanese uh, horror film? Maybe. Yes. <laughs> yes. Question mark? It is a film and it is Japanese and... There are horrific there are elements. elements. Yeah. Uh, all of these things are true, and then some. You are not ready for the, all the truths the, this film the, has prepared the, for you. The, the label-defying house or hasu uh, from '77. So, uh, in case you're tuning in for the first time, though, this is an analysis show, not a review show, and that does mean we're going to spoil this film as, and as much as has, yeah that has anything to do with anything. Exactly. But we will do that. But we'll avoid that for the first part of the show. We'll have a synopsis. We'll have thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which are very spoiler gentle. We'll expand the syllabus which will be more spoiler-heavy. And then finally we get down to business and all spoiler bets, though they don't really matter. Don't make a bet there because it will not pay off. Um, the odds are very, very short on that. Not long odds. Uh, therefore, um, you know, you've done the thing. So I've told the words. Arthur, let's hear a synopsis, please. When her father springs a surprise fiancé honor, young gorgeous changes her summer plans to go to her auntie's house. She hopes to connect with her deceased mother and family while there. She's joined by her six close friends when their own summer plans fall through. However, not everything is as it seems at Auntie's house. Well, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. That, you did it again, Arthur. You described a movie that de- defies describing. She has an erratic eye. We find that. You know, that's, that's the most crucial thing. <laughs> that we discovered that one eye is just not right. Yeah. And that's never a good sign. No. So, well, without any further ado, Dalton Picker of this film, you finally got to it. I finally got to it. Tell We've, me what you think of House. Yeah, you've only been telling me about it for the better part of a decade. Uh, I did finally watch it. This is a good movie. Uh, <laughs> God, the movie is good. I don't know what you want from me. Yeah, I, uh, I normally take a whole bunch of uh, uh, a lot of notes in my in my thing. I, no, no notes. I have none. I was absorbed entirely for this entire film. It's, it's so engrossing, uh, and, and I think a lot of that comes down to. Uh, uh, I'm gonna take a. I'm gonna take a swing at this real quick. You ready? Nobuhiko Obayashi, 
There we go. I think that feels pretty good. God bless you. Uh, Obayashi, uh, this is his first uh, film. He'd been working in uh, you know, advertising and commercials before this. Does uh, that show? Well, here's two <laughs> things. Both of these things show, right? Yes, his his work in commercial shows, uh, but also his his directorial debut shows, right? This has the feel of somebody going, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to make another movie again, so I better make sure I don't leave anything out. <laughs> All the dumb shit that's been swirling in my brain my entire life has got to hit the screen. And man, uh, did he do it. Uh, I, I do want to mention he did just pass away this year. Oh, yeah, uh, he died of lung cancer about six months ago. Oh. So, uh, well, there you go. If ever there were a time to discover his work, this is it. Dustin, yeah. do you, uh, again, I have no notes, and I don't really want to talk about all the cool stuff that's in this movie until we get more into spoiler talk. I guess I will say, uh, for years, Dustin has described this as a uh, Scooby-Doo episode directed by Rob Zombie. And yeah, that that summary scans. Uh, it is full of whimsy, uh, more whimsy than most horror films, but is also full of weird surrealism uh, and just bananas imagery. That will probably live in my brain for the rest of my life. Excellent. Uh, which is, you know, I, how usually when I walk uh, away from a film and seared, that's how I know I liked it, uh, unfortunately. That's how I, how I uh, have started to categorize movies, the more of them that I put in my eyeballs. Dustin, are you familiar or acquainted with any more of Obayashi's work at nope. all? Really? Just this? That's it. That's it. And this film's got kind of, I assume you came to it because of its cult following. I assume somebody kind of passed it on to you yeah, as you yeah. did to us. Yeah, saw it on the Criterion sort of streaming services gotcha. back in the day. You know, it's only been available in the States since uh, 2009, 2010 Yeah, with only, it was, had. that's kind of part of its its cult cachet is how hard it was to get for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I learned, uh, I did do some research on this, which was fun. Again, learning about that, which you just mentioned, Dustin, uh, and uh, learning uh, about kind of some of the themes uh, at work under the surface uh, and uh, about some of the the impact that this film's had and as far as, uh, you know, horror over the last 40 years or so. And I'm sure we'll talk about all of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, we'll leave it with this. All of the things that I was kind of annoyed with Poltergeist about last week, this film just doesn't have any of that stuff. It's also a ghost story. It's also a haunted house movie. And despite having literally 100% less plot than the film Poltergeist manages to say and be about so many other things. Uh, and again, not obviously we had a good time talking about Poltergeist last week. There were things in the text to discuss. There was subtext within the text to discuss. But man, that, that Hollywood studio production cannot hold a candle to this weird fever dream. And uh, yeah, I... What more do you want uh, from a horror movie? Uh, to feel like you weren't awake when you watched it is uh, the answer that I usually have. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Arthur? Do you like House? Is this your first time also? Yeah, I'd watched parts of it before, but okay. yeah, this is my first full viewing of it. I hadn't seen it all the way. I think I'd seen about the first third of it when they arrived to the house was about where I You managed it. to look away. Yeah, and so I... Uh, uh -oh. I was. I don't know why I didn't finish it, but I, I finished it this time. Yeah. Well, you left in the the last time the film gives you a chance to leave. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I checked out early because um, you don't have a chance if you don't. No. Um, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I loved it. Uh, like Dalton, I really didn't have a lot of notes because this is a movie. It's hard to you know review in a traditional sense because of the nature of it. Um, I think that a first time director uh, with a advertising background. We kind of talked about this with Tony Scott uh, some in the past. Uh, that that whole group or 
not Tony Scott, but when we did uh, Jacob's Ladder. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't remember yeah. what's his name that did that one, who also came from a yeah, advertising the, background. The English advertisers. Yeah, advertising that whole like, kind of wave that came over at that time. Ridley, Tony, uh, that gentleman, I can't well, think of their name. And names. then you have that class of American genetics yeah. directors. Then you get Fincher. Yeah, at, Fincher's at all. Jones, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Um, and so uh, there's a little special on the Criterion Channel with Ty West talking, kind of talking about that, how bringing in these commercial artists... Uh, brought a new lens to filmmaking so it wasn't so stock. And, and I, that really shows here because um, the director is just using a wealth of fun uh, photography and trick photography and special effects that hadn't been done before in, in this manner um, and assembling it in, in a very coherent way. And a lot of times you talk about art house film and doesn't have a plot or there's kind of a plot. I mean, this does have a very structured plot. I think, you know, if you take away some of that trick photography, it all makes sense. I think yeah. it's very easy to follow along with what is happening, um, which isn't always the case with this kind of art house, existential, experimental film. It's a very experimental film in that way as well. Uh, and, and I appreciate how it does come together in such a cohesive manner because it could have fallen flat totally. a number of times. Um, it's a movie that is made with a bunch of not only a first-time director, but a bunch of first-time actresses who had been mostly models and yeah. commercials or music videos. And so it was their first um, kind of break as well. And so they're all coming in there as a learning experience. I guess the director had worked with most, if not all, of them before, yeah, though, which I think I is cool. So. He's like, all right, I, I've, I've got I've some got my, people in the back yep. of my head that, yeah, I've got enough charisma to carry the camera. Yeah, and, and he utilizes them great, and they're all... Uh, mostly memorable. I really like Kung Fu quite She's a bit. Great. She's my favorite, I think, of them. She probably has the most to do in that yeah. middle chunk. Um, sure. I like Mac a lot. Mac's fun. Yeah. Uh, so I enjoy it quite a bit. And it's a movie, like I said, it's kind of hard to critique in a traditional sense because it bucks so many norms. What I will um, say, and I, Arthur, I don't know if this will resonate, but I, I, it's about your opinion, so I hope it does. Uh, Dustin and I <clears throat> will kind of get on board with a movie that's weird for its own sake a lot. Mm -hmm. You You don't... You don't cotton to that. You don't have any time for it. I've noticed you're a little bit more quick. You're quicker than either of us, I think, to go, this is doing it for its own sake. It's lost up its own butt. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, Upstream Color is a great example of that. Sure. I, I mean, we can talk about Shane Carrillo all we want to now with things that have come out to light this year about right. him. Um, that was a movie I was really vehemently against because it felt very pretentious and very up its own butt in that regard. And I don't think Hasu is doing that. I think Hasu is... A, a very fun, whimsical project that is a studio film. I mean, it was a film Toho wanted to do, and they finally got a director who they thought could pull it off, and he pulled it off. Uh, it was an answer to Jaws. It was an answer to American Horror that was coming in. Uh, Japan wanted to do something. Toho wanted to do something, and they, they got this off the ground. And uh, I, I think they landed. You know, I, I think there's a lot here going forward. I think the weirdness works. That quirkiness works. It feeds the narrative. It feeds everything going on. It's not doing it just to do it. If he was doing a bunch of trick photography just to be like, hey, look at my trick. But I don't ever feel like it, it gets to that point of, of ego. Yeah, and, it all services the the ghost story. Yeah, at uh, the center. I mean, then there's some of it it's, in the it's setup. Special effects is integral to to this film as another big '77 release Star Wars, yeah. right? Like yeah. that yeah. movie has to have the special effects. Yeah, does it elevate the film? Probably, absolutely, honestly. And it, even same here, though. You know, you know, the point where you, I think you could kind of argue about that is in that first act where. Um, we first meet Gorgeous, we meet the girls, and he's yeah. doing a lot of that kind of freeze-frame trick photography type stuff early it's on. getting you ready for it. But yeah, it's yeah. all primer. It's all like Those double letting you know exactly what you're in for. Um, and I, I think it works. It's kind of pop art style, uh, just playing with every kind of trick under the book. And when that works, it works really well. And I, th I think he does land it. 
Um, I had a lot of fun watching it. There's a lot of laughs to be had. The the watermelon greengrocer, uh, the the things that happened with Mister Togo. Um, you know where that little thing because that was the thing I was like oh god I don't know where I want this to go uh, but where that resonates or where that culminates I think is just a fun bit and it's hilarious and so yeah I, I had a lot of fun with it I, I think it's a blast I think it's really smart I think it's really you know colorful whimsical you can laugh at it but it's also deeply unsettling and I think it navigates that tone of humor and and fear in, in a very smart way um there are a number of images that are very unnerving, and I think a lot of those special effects and that trick photography a lot lends itself to that. And so I, I think without that, this movie doesn't work. Um, so uh, for the movie, for what I was trying to do, yeah, I, I applaud it. I really like it, and I'm glad I finally got to sit down and watch it and had a good reason to because it's one uh, I'd really like to explore again because it does resonate and it does sit with you. And, and for that, I admire it greatly. So, yeah. It looks like cotton candy. Yep, for sure, for sure. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What would I say regarding <laughs> Yeah, how many this? times have you seen this now? Oh, I don't know, like five or six. I, say, I know you visit this fairly often. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie that's definitely uh, in my rotation of movies that I, I come back to uh, from time to time. And there is a moment in Stephen King's The Shining from 1980 in which uh, Wendy and uh, baby Danny are running away uh, from Jack Torrance, and they go into one of the little parlor rooms of the Overlook Hotel, and it's full of these skeletons. That mo- moment is so weird and silly and Adams Family esque, mm-hmm. uh, like again TV kind of comedy horror. That moment is what this movie is in, in its entire runtime. Yeah. It's, it's just simply a Japanese setting, but also it's, it's uh, man, it, I really got to stop listening to Blank Check before I come to record. Uh, they're talking about Roger Rabbit this week. It's uh, it's Judge Doom with the knives for eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the kind of shit that scares you when you're eight years old and just like stays stuck in in your amygdala for the rest of your Absolutely. life. Absolutely, it, it does. And it's and it's also very Sesame Street at moments. Yeah, which is wild and weird. And uh, it's also playing with like the tropes of the big slasher movie and you know that kind of stuff uh, alongside doing other things that are just really strange and surprising and and uh, unexplained and unexplainable. And the whole time in a cat. Cotton candy flavored confection of you know spiky sour delicious you know um, repulsion, all of that at once. Uh, so I love House. I think it's a blast. It's a good time. I love the non professional actresses. Uh, I yeah. There's there's not much to say about it. The score is weirdly recursive. It's got this strange Mobius effect mm. as you watch it, where things are coming back and recurring, but they're also slightly mm-hmm. different. They've been they've been warbled and wheeled in a way that's strange and, and surprising. And so I keep using the word strange because I mean it's just a, it's, it's a strange, strange film. movie, mm-hmm. and that is its appeal for me. So I kind of love it. So there you go, dear listener. Those were our thoughts, which are mostly pro. Let's move on to the next little part of our show in which we do this little mental exercise by uh, constructing a syllabus uh, for a class in which we're using house, house uh, in some way. I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. What does that syllabus look like for you, pal? Yeah, so there's a term that comes up about this time of year every year or anytime A24 decides to release a new horror film from uh, Eggers or, or Aster. Uh, that term is elevated horror. Which entered the discourse about, I don't know, five years ago or it's eight a, years ago? Yeah, I mean, it's been about a decade. Maybe. I mean, time is so stretchy it's lately. Hard to it's know. hard to know. But I feel like it's been at least five to six years. The better it, part of the last decade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's a term that pops up in regards to these movies, that especially I think A24 is the prime example of this. Sure. They have a very clean, atmospheric tone. They rely a lot more on mood uh, than they do narrative. Um, 
and really it's essentially kind of i think a a way to marry art house and horror in a way yeah they're all re it's it's all a revisitation of that uh, conversation you know none of us were around for this discourse because we were either uh babies not born or you know children right. uh but with silence of the lambs in 90 right like yeah. ah this is now this is a horror film here. yeah oh i'm i'm uh, moving a monocle yeah. that's what i'm pantomiming yeah and so i, I really want to just do an epic takedown of that term because I hate it so much. Um, <laughs> it's true. I know you do. And so uh, I think for this course, it's, it's really what it'd be. I think it'd be in a horror film course. I think it'd be a great place for it. Cause, mm. You know, you can talk about cycles of horror and I think it's a prime example of a cycle of horror in the modern era. Um, and so I, I really think on the onset, uh, the AV club, and this is kind of why it's in top of my mind, but the AV club just released an episode about, uh, what is essentially elevated horror and kind of does that term matter? Mm. Does it mean anything or, you know, what does it stand for? Uh, and I've kind of formed my own opinions about it. And I think this class would just be me deconstructing that as it's, it's nothing more than a BS gatekeepy term that makes certain film critics feel better about themselves for liking horror films uh, because they don't want to be seen as liking schlock or gore. You know, they, they want something a little more tangible on the palate. And really what I think it comes down to is this idea of elevated horror, as you've already mentioned, these horror films that are marrying art house style and genre have been around for a long time. You've already yeah. mentioned Silence of the Lambs, which, all intents and purposes, is a very classical film. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I do have it on my syllabus because I think Demi is doing a lot with the camera. It was, it was that, mood and tone when you mentioned that. I was like, yeah, that, yeah exactly. It's all stuff he's doing with the camera to affect yeah. your mood that's making you feel yeah. scared and icky. And then Ty, you know, and I think the great thing about it is Ty really gets into this in that little interview Ty West does about how um, the, and it comes back to that thing about classical Hollywood cinema because, you know, he's talking about stock films that feel like a product. Uh, which is a, a holdover from the, the studio style, that classical Hollywood style that is still so part and parcel to filmmaking where you are just pushing these films through and getting them off and getting them into cinemas. And so I think um, I think for this, I can go back and, and really delve into the idea of, of good art house horror or elevated horror is going to be abrasive in the sense that it's going to let you know it's a movie and mm. and that is antithetical antithetical there we go to the classical hollywood style which is purely designed to keep you from thinking that you're watching a movie you're, right. you're just drawn into this story watching real people uh and anything that goes against that is is where art house i think starts to come from and so i would go back and i would start with uh carl uh th dreiser and i would do vampire Mm. Um, from the 30s, a silent film that he did uh, that's doing a lot of the trick photography type stuff. It's very moody. It's very atmospheric, and you're very, I don't know what's going on. Um, but I think it is really a prime example of this, what you know, modern scholars want to call elevated horror. But, I mean, we're, we're talking about 100 years ago almost now uh, where, where filmmakers were already trying to play within that genre and play with the filmmaking techniques, which I think is really where it comes down to with elevated horror is can you do something unique with the imagery and with the camera as a tool to shape your movie in a yeah. new way? Uh, so I'd go there with Vampire first. From there, I'm going to go with probably Eyes Without a Face, um, which would be 60s, I think, 50s Friend or 60s. You. Yeah, yeah Friend you. Um, which is another one, which is another 
uh, very transgressive French horror film that's doing a lot of the same stuff. I mean, it's very, uh, I think, mature in a lot of ways as a you know as a filmmaker for Franju. Uh, as a narrative, it's not, you know, quote-unquote schlocky in any way. It's a very beautiful film. It's very well-developed, well-directed, well-designed. Uh, and all those things kind of come together in a very modern way, a modern sensibility uh, that also kind of prove the, you know, prove the point that, you know, this type of horror isn't nothing new. I mean, we've been doing this for years, decades. It's just that the schlock is usually more well-known and, easier to get out. I mean, you can do a lot of these movies really quick, really cheap, really yeah. easy and, and get them in audiences. And so we feel saturated, I think, by the schlock, but those more artistic endeavors and experimental endeavors are easy to find, even even today and even back then. Uh, from there, I want to go into Suspiria. I want to talk about mm. Argento, and I want to talk about Suspiria and just that wild trip of a movie uh, that is focused on color and design and sound and that goblin score uh, and how those components come together to uh, develop a very unsettling film, which is a definite precursor for a lot of stuff that Astor's doing and the stuff that you going to bring in doing. the remake at all to kind of talk about the lineage of this sort of thing? I hadn't thought about it, but you could. Because I think it'd be interesting. Because right? of the director, right? Gwaiz, yeah, Guadagnino, you know, he, yeah. he has this huge Oscar-y year yeah, and I, turns around and goes... I'm going to remake a famously weird horror movie. Yeah, and obviously he has some goodwill because of who he is and what he's just done, Yeah, which I think allows him a bit of goodwill in remaking such a classic horror film because any time a classic horror film like this is just remade, you yeah. know, Nightmare on Elm Street even, which isn't necessarily a huge artistic endeavor, but it's an you know, obvious classic with yeah. a lot of love. Uh, automatically, people are like, why are you doing it? You know, But I think Suspiria had enough goodwill with uh, Guadagnino that they were able to do that. Um, so yeah, I think that would be a great a kind of counterpoint or modern example. Yeah, it's just kind of an of, interesting through line. Yeah, really. I, I think so. Uh, from there, I want to go with The Shining. Uh, talk about Kubrick. You already mentioned The Shining, uh, and I think you know he's he's doing some of the same stuff. He's he's really focused on atmosphere. He's really focused on visuals. Obviously, a uh, big part of his style was just the the image itself. And I think it's so key to his films and trying to understand what he's doing and just reading what's in the frame more so than what the plot is. Mm. Um, so I, I want to go there. And finally, I'm going to name Silence of the Lambs. I, I think it's a good ending point that's 30 years old now Yeah, uh, to show like, hey, this is nothing new. This is not a new concept. This is purely a term developed to make people feel better about themselves uh, without having to come down from on high to mingle with the common folk. Yeah. And it's what I think it really boils down to. I, you know, there's nothing wrong with watching... A, a, a schlocky horror film, and oftentimes Nightmare on Elm Street is a very schlocky horror film. There's a lot going on there still, that though, right? completely kind of revolutionized the genre. I think absolutely, and uh, I, yeah. What I think you're getting at, Arthur, is it does kind of come down to a larger divide, uh, you know, that we've been trying to talk about the entire time we've been doing this dumb podcast. It is this kind of this weird? Uh, sectioning off of some films from other films. And yeah. they shan't mingle. You can't let my, your peas touch your carrots. Uh, these films are genre. These films are, are silly. And these films are important. Uh, despite the fact that different mechanisms of financing and producing those two sets of films exist, right? Like, there's plenty of indie films that go in the these are good category and plenty that go in the these are schlock category and there's yeah. plenty of big studio films that go in both categories so yeah. it is this yeah you're it's it's this fictional made up uh 
segregating of taste. That's just not yeah. useful. I mean, we don't go. Oh, I'm watching an elevated comedy tonight. Yeah, because you don't have to. I mean, you know. I, yeah, I think you don't. I it's mean, it's a genre that's you don't have to be like, oh, I, yeah, I love comedy. But if you be like, oh, I like horror, like, oh, okay. People don't go out of their like way this, to draw a stigma this. about. I think people assume there's a stigma Maybe it's about watching different horror words, right? Because like people can go, ah, the death of death of Stalin's a satire and game night's a comedy. Yeah. Right. But those are both films that are like, there's filmmaking technique within the, both of those comedies, like yeah. lots of filmmaking technique within yep. both of those comedies. So it is, yeah, it's, and maybe that is it is just because the the subcategories of action or comedy or whatever have like codified words. But yeah, right. It's, it's nonsense. I just think the discourse would be a lot easier if some of these film critics would get off their horses <laughs> and just admit that they like horror. I think that's really what it boils down to. Instead of trying to better themselves and and stand out from the crowd by liking quote unquote elevated horror. So anyway, that's my soapbox slash classroom over the week. <laughs> very cool, very cool. I like it very much, and I agree entirely. What do you say, Dalton? How would you expand that syllabus? Well, Arthur's uh, mentioned this little Ty West interview at uh, the Criterion Collection did as part of the release. So uh, if you watch this film, it's uh, I think it's streaming on uh, HBO's platform now, the yeah. Warner Brothers HBO Max or whatever. But if you go watch it on the Criterion channel, it's got all their supplementals that they made for it. Um, and Arthur's mentioned this Ty West interview, but there's also a, an essay from the filmmaker Coconata, who did the Columbus, which is a good movie. Um, and, and he talks about uh, this, an idea that we've talked about a lot on this show uh, as it pertains to, oh, what's his doodle? Herzog, the ecstatic truth, that thing. Uh, yeah. Well, he, he references in his essay uh, at the start of it um, this quote from, oh, Oh, it's Camus. That's who it is. Uh, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. Uh, and so he just kind of talks about this film a little bit, and he does talk about the background of Obayashi and, uh, you know, his experience growing up being born in Hiroshima in 38. Uh, all of Kobe, uh, Obayashi's uh, childhood friends died in the bomb. Um, and this film is very much a film that he was like, I want to talk about the bomb, but I don't want to make a movie about the bomb. And that's why you get one two-second flash of it. Uh, and then there is just kind of this visual connection between uh, the spooky cat and the mushroom cloud, and that's really all we get. Mm. Uh, and so uh, Coconut just kind of um, just kind of talks about that connection and the, and the way in which you know all this really interesting trick photography is used throughout the film, and the ways in, in which film can kind of talk around what it actually wants to talk about. Uh, we did kind of deal with that a little bit last week, though. I just want to bring it up because I thought it was interesting and probably inform the conversation we have once we get down to analysis. Uh, and it was kind of what I started to build the class around, but it just felt too similar to last week's episode where we kind of talked about horror yeah. uh, and history and, and that connection. Uh, you could do that, though. I thought about you know films that kind of I thought of the main tree and came to remake that Demi did. Yeah. Uh, it was really unappreciated at its yeah. time, uh, but I, I think does get out a lot of... It wants to be about a lot of things without talking about the things it wants yeah. to be about. Wants to be about MK Ultra, which the original wanted to be about as well, and didn't really want to talk about that, and it wanted to be about the war on terror and modern politics, and kind of wanted to go around it. Uh, Get Out wants to talk a lot about not just the the history of uh, slavery in this country, but also the ways in which that colors conversations that take place just between people in everyday life, and mm -hmm. the ways in which uh, ethnic groups are commodified and again it's talking around these things yeah. by being so much about them you don't even always notice what it's about uh, and i think those are interesting movies but i'm more interested in talking about live action cartoons yes i just i want to talk about something to get to what i really want to talk about sounds about right so uh, yeah. that's how i do house who does some really cool stuff as we've talked yeah. about uh but i think the coolest thing it does is it knows 
that it is a film in 1977 and they don't have $50 million or however much money they give George Lucas for Star Wars. Meaning that the seams are going to show in these camera effects just because if they're going to do camera effects nonstop, there's only so much that they can hide. And, and I think what works so well about this is the leaning into the unreality, right? The knowing the camera trick is going to make the image look more uncanny yep. and leaning into that tone. Uh, so I kind of just wanted to, I want to examine some films that either directly use animation in some way uh, or films that are tonally have a, a comedic, uh, not even necessarily comedic, but in a high fr a highly frenetic uh, animated energy. Uh, so we're going to start with House and another 1977 film, Smokey and the Bandit. Nice. Uh, which is uh, a studio film, but a, a way like small studio film. I, I, I can't remember, is that Paramount, Fox? Who, who owns that? I don't even know. Um, but you know, this is a movie that basically exists because Burt Reynolds and like one of the main like stunt coordinators that he was friends with in the seventies, like thought it would be cool to make a car chase movie Yeah, that was just jokes and car chases. And if you have not seen Smokey and the Bandit in a while, I assure you, you are forgetting how much of a Bugs Bunny character the bandit is. Yes. Much like the spooky ant in house, he does, uh, a full right down the barrel of the camera, uh, wink. Uh, basically, <laughs> at one point, and I think that starting with House and this and Smoking the Bandit will kind of like codify what we're talking about. When we talk about how can you take live action and the the logic of cartoons and smash those mm -hmm. together to do something interesting. I think then we're going to jump forward about a decade uh, to a film that already came up because of uh, you know it's on my mind today. Roger Rabbit, I think yep. again is very useful and not only talking about the technique and the technology and how hard it is. Again, Roger Rabbit accidentally set the standard. Zemeckis, with his weird obsession with technology in his career, yeah. does a lot of trailblazing for Hollywood. Uh, and there is no fucking Marvel movies without Bob Hoskins talking to that, uh, that, damn, rabbit. that damn rabbit. <laughs> There's, it doesn't exist. Bob yeah. Hoskins had to do it first, which means it was probably harder on him than anybody else that's ever had to do it. Uh, and again, you know, there's other actors who had to act off tennis balls uh, before, right? They'd used animation and live action together yeah. before, but they really went in on it the same way that, you know, uh, Wizard of Oz goes in on color. Like, it's not mm -hmm. the first color film, but they want you to feel like it's the first color film. And Roger Rabbit does that. It makes you feel like, ah, this truly is the first time animation and real people have rubbed shoulders. Uh, but again, it does it to talk about a real thing that happened. They just got rid of L.A.'s nationally renowned public transit system, and now 100 years later, what is L.A. known for? It's dog shit transportation infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to have a good one, and they just took it apart. And they you know, made a cartoon rabbit movie that discusses that. Interesting stuff. We're then going to move forward into 1999, and we will be looking at a film we can't stop talking about, and more specifically, I can't stop talking about The Matrix. But I think it is because the Wachowskis do have so many influences in their repertoire, and House does as well. And I think connecting uh, the Wachowski uh, inspiration from uh, anime and uh, Eastern animation and, and looking at all of the imagery and iconography that kind of gets transplanted over to Western sensibilities. Uh, but also, you know, there's plenty of Western animation and Western comic book uh, iconography within The Matrix's sensibilities. But again, I think talking about Roger Rabbit as it goes into the special effects of The Matrix, it does kind of let you start to think about how uh, genre is, is just what you do with the tools, right? The, the form is always evolving, but different filmmakers can take the same toolkit and do something totally different and still 
try to use cartoon logic to make the story more compelling, to let you wash over you and get sucked into the, the things it's trying to do. I think then we'll look at some, you know, some dumb stuff. We'll probably look at a fast five. Uh, you know, the one genre that saw it go from uh, a gritty, somewhat grounded story to its, you know, the Saturday morning cartoon version of itself. A very G.I. Joe. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know it. I think that's interesting. And I think we'll probably watch some MCU clips or you know, not even necessarily those. We'll just watch some 2010 superhero clips to kind of talk about how all of this ended up coming together to be less interesting, potentially. Uh, but then I think we'll bring it back around to horror that is kind of surreal and using a lot of in-camera photography tricks and a lot of lighting tricks. And we'll talk about She Dies Tomorrow, uh, directed by uh, one of the stars of Upstream Color, yep. which you just mentioned, Arthur. Uh, a great film from this year that I really, really like a lot. Uh, but I, I think it does a lot of the same thing House does in, in terms of keeping you unfocused on what the story is about until it's too late and then washing over you so completely with what the film's about that you, uh, I don't know, you feel like somebody just uh, said something you've never heard before uh, that seems so true to you. And, and it's great. It's good shit. It's a good movie. This is a good movie. And I think they share a common lineage. Uh, and I think talking about this kind of series of 40 years of films as we get more competent in filmmaking with the technology uh, we, we could kind of just talk about how form and function and plot have all kind of evolved and mutated uh, around the, just the changes in technology. Very cool, very cool. I like that. I, li I like that technological approach you're taking. Yeah, too. I, do, yeah. I don't do a lot of like formal classes, right? But yeah. I think this is this is a fun one because you get to talk about not you get to talk about tone and technique mm -hmm. and the ways in which they they interact. Well, and it's a kind of film history that I don't see enough of. You know, I mean, you see it sometimes, but it's not not nearly enough writing about it. And I, that's something I dig. Well, I feel smart. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, buddy. Um, so I'm going to do something a little unusual outside the beaten path as well. I want I'm going to do some theory stuff. Okay, and and specifically, I'm thinking about Lacan and psychoanalysis. Yeah. So psychoanalysis in the broadest sense, and then Lacanian psychoanalysis more particularly, mediated through your boy and mine, Slavoj Žižek. Oh, Slavo. So you beautiful uh, man. So uh, the uh, the text is "Enjoy Your Symptom: An Introduction to Lacanian Psychoanalysis" by Uncle Slavoj. Um, and so that'll be like the textbook that we use. And thinking about this film in relationship to that, and then the other films that I would also want to think about, and some of the concepts, big Lacanian concepts. I'm not going to, you know, bore the listener with this huge explanation, but obviously there's trauma, there is um, this mother issue that's at work in this film, mm. and all of those, you know, bits and pieces are part and parcel to what we're, we're going to deal with. Now, in more specific detail, I want to think about obsession and uh, just the, the symptom itself in terms of uh, Vertigo from Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah. And so that would be a film that we would use, and I think in a weird way, aesthetically, um, especially that sort of fog-filtered lens... Uh, that's used in Vertigo. There's a real strange similarity between it and some of the shots that you see in House. Yeah. And uh, so I would, you know, I think that would be a lot of fun as a, a point of interface uh, there. The next film that I would want to use is um, Jurassic Park um, by Steven Spielberg. Okay. Love it. And the obscene. A film father. I could have used, honestly, now I mean, that yeah. I think about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sure. Well, I mean, the, those first CGI characters, right? Yeah. Um, that, that did, well, not first, but most real feeling. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most successful first yeah. outing, I guess. 
Uh, so, but that idea of Alan Grant as the obscene father, mm-hmm. who is rehabilitated because Steven Spielberg's world, but what does that look like and how does that play out? And then finally getting into uh, the imaginary, the real, and uh, the symbolic orders, those uh, orders of Lacanian psychoanalysis and, and of understanding and the way in which language holds us bondage and all that. I mean, you've already mentioned it, Dalton. We're going to watch The Matrix. Oh, duh, okay. And, yeah, all right, there and, we go. And, and, and do look You were it. looking at me, I was like, why is he... Why is he really looking? Oh, okay. It's because you're so handsome. Well, and because you. you said the Matrix. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> you're just looking at me like, I should have figured out where you were going already, and oh, I should have. You no. were right. Um, but yeah, that would be um, sort of a, a module, perhaps, in a theory class more broadly. Um, I don't know if I want to pull out an entire just Lacan in an individual class. There'd be a lot more to that particular syllabus in terms of reading and in terms of viewings. But certainly that would be a module in a broader film theory class and maybe the starters to a specific Lacanian uh, approach to film studies. Um, obviously, if I did that, Boonwell, there's a number of sure. other uh, filmmakers yeah. that I'd explore uh, from that point forward. But that's that's where I'd begin if I were to construct a syllabus for this course. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got quite a bit longer. Enough of this foolishness. It is time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. And that's right, dear listener, that business is, as always, analysis. Shall we talk form? We shall, I we, suppose. I am sure we would get to it, yeah. Uh, you're I mean, you're, you're know, leading the ship, <laughs> my captain, my captain. Um, uh, what, what I find really fascinating uh, is that this movie is super gimmicky, but because it does all the gimmicks, the gimmicks themselves become a style. Yep, that's, Freeze frames, after yep. images, stop yep. motion. That's uh, why I brought up She Dies Tomorrow. Uh, mm-hmm. It's another film where, like, just doing gimmick gimmickry is the thing. Like, it's it's doing it so much that you it's making it the thing, so you know it's not the thing. Yeah. I guess. Uh, and you, another comment you you made when talking about your syllabus, Dustin, made me think about She Dies Tomorrow again, which is why I was just like, mm, you need to watch this movie. I think you're gonna like it because it is kind of humming on a lot of the same things you were just talking about for that class. Um, and it is the, the, the thing that Halsey was doing so well, right? It is throwing all of the spaghetti at the wall, not in terms of, you know, when we say that, we're usually talking right about disparate plot themes or disparate, yeah. th- disparate or rather, disparate plot movements and disparate themes yep. that don't seem connected. Here, the spaghetti is just technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just where I'm going to show you all the tricks that I know, but it's because I'm trying to reinforce a specific thing. Yeah. Which is what She Dies Tomorrow does right. so well, and I think Halsey does so well is... I want to talk to you about anxiety, but I don't want to talk about it at all. Right. Which I think it just nails, man. And I don't. Sometimes a film really does keep its magic trickness. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know, obviously we talked about that a little bit on, when we talked about the Prestige a few months ago. The idea of of film being a kind of illusory when it works best. Um, and man, this film just has that, and I think it has a lot to do with what you're just talking about—that the gimmick isn't the thing because yeah. I'm using all of them. Right. I, yeah. I think a gimmick works best when it does underscore the narrative, right? Yeah. When the film becomes the gimmick, it, it starts to, and and that's a, a love hate relationship I have with Memento. Sometimes is you yeah. know, do I feel like it's too gimmicky, or does it you know underscore the movie? Um, and I think Tenant's another one where that's kind of backfired as well from what I've read. I haven't seen it, but from what, what yeah, I've understood. Dustin, Arthur, and I are responsible. We don't go to cinema houses right now, and you no. shouldn't either. Um, so I, I, I think it's so important to still let your, you know, your vision or whatever guide the movie and, and let that gimmick underscore it and sell it for you. And I, I think that's what it does well here. And I think it does, as Dalton mentioned earlier, the, the tone is so vital to that working. 
because if you can accept the kind of camp goofiness of it, you can accept kind of those jagged edges around the the corners and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so that when it doesn't shine perfectly, it still works incredibly well. Um, and I think that idea of just saying like, okay, we're going to do tricks inside the lens or we're going to do uh, some, some freeze frames or, you know, whatever it is. And we're going to use painted matte settings for the, apartment landscape or, you know, whatever it is that that's going on and it just works so well. And not only underscores, you know, the narrative, but reinforces so much of the themes, like you said, that anxiety of, you know, and grief of, you know, of loss, not only as a person, you know, and the daughter dealing with her mother, but also the nation. Well, I think that's where we get to think about this being right. Like this is a Japanese horror film for Japanese audiences. And the, you know, if you're talking about a thing that the generation that's adults like that is like they're i was gonna say something that i I thought was clever but was probably stupid uh but i I guess it is uh, i'll talk about a little bit i i think i almost talked about neon genesis when i was talking about making a a syllabus that was like the thing that's not about the thing that kind of film syllabus Mm -hmm. and that's a, a tv show that like doesn't really pop off here in the states until at least you know the the generation of people that i know that you know kind of fell in love with this show as teens and, and adolescents uh they all started watching after 9 11 uh and that is a show that is like kind of like about cosmic big uh destruction of of your way of life and i think so much of japanese popular culture and art from like 45 onwards is about reckoning with the knowledge that we, we just talked about last week, right? We talked about uh, America being uncomfortable. Was it last week we talked about yeah, this? Yeah, poltergeist, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the uncomfort with the idea of, like, empires falling and rising, right? And so much of Japanese art and, and fiction after the bomb and after the war is about the knowability of, like, no, we, we're, we're an island nation that came, th- out, that came through out of warring states. We know that uh, political uh, regimes... They come and they go, and the world comes and changes, and weird stuff happens that you can't understand. And I think, you know, uh, Obayashi's setting out to make this film that's dealing with, you know, his own childhood grief and pain for you know, people at the same age as him, right? Like people who are in their their uh, 30s and 40s who lived through, um, you know, the, the end of the war. I don't think it's, it's just not the film he wants to make, right? Like he couldn't... I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to armchair analyze the guy, but it just... I don't know. I don't know if you could make a ghost story that's also about the bomb and be serious. You know what I mean? You almost, he, the tone has to be comedic because, uh, you know, I've, I've watched a couple of things about survivors of the bomb, the people who were kids, obviously, and just kind of them talking about it in this sort of detached way that, you know, people who experience very serious trauma usually talk about those, those things. And the way they talk about it, they go, yeah, it was like a cartoon. It was a, it was a rainbow on fire. Like, I don't know how else to describe it to you. Uh, and that I think that does kind of really inform the weird cartoonishness that this film has because it is showing you horrific violent, like severed limbs that are just kind of dancing around of their own volition. Mm-hmm. But it's doing it in a way that is, you know, not painful to look at. I don't know. It, right. it, it is a uh, a thin wire it walks across. Well, and I think the way in which it uh, managed to achieve the melancholy, co- uh, you know, chord of all of that is the way in which the film does ape the style of what I'd call a soap opera style. 
there's a real sort of melodramatic. Well, especially in the flashback sequence, right? Yeah, right about the the aunt's uh, her fiance who didn't make it back from the war, right? Mm-hmm. Which is again the only sequence where we talk about the war at all, right. really. Yeah, is how it informs the backstory of the film. And they but, do but introduction to the stepmother, yeah. You know her scarf flapping, yeah. In the gosh, wind, yes. And, and then the gone with the wind sort of, yeah. uh, You know, reverse projected screen behind sure. her and all that, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that for the flashback. I didn't even thought about that. The flashback also does some kind of newsreel stuff. It's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. Uh, oof, that was one of my favorite sequences, yeah. too. It's just like, oh, here's a whole other bag of tricks that they yeah. have for, for the Oh, here's film. a little silent movie for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so good. Uh, what a movie. Yeah, what what a movie. Um, so, all right. Well, so that's form out of the way, right? That, that's, I think that's enough to say about form. Um, I guess we need to talk about Mother. What about her? Uh, mommy issues and, ah, and mothers mom. and mother replacements. I don't have any issues with my mom. Uh, Fuck okay. you. Well, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think okay. there's a psychoanalyst you should see. Yeah. Um, maybe Dude, not. I've got, I've, I've got one. We've got an appointment coming up <laughs> on my birthday. Uh, excellent. Yeah, but, that's what uh, I thought. Yeah, that, <laughs> the, 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 the movie is driven by this sort of familial trauma sure. as well. So we've been talking about the national trauma. Throughout. I'm well... Right, we've got the antagonist who is the ant, the ghost of the ant, and then mm-hmm. we have uh, Gorgeous, who is the protagonist of the film. Right, and who has a sort of a nemesis in the form of stepmother, who ends up, you know, being restored. And I was thinking a lot about, um, particularly in Lacan and his idea of this obscene father sure. stuff, you know, and that this is where Harrison Ford's not a good dad to short round in um, Indiana Jones, and yeah. by the end, you know, I love you, Indy, you know, and he sort of, you know, after he gets, you know brought back from the cult of Kali, you know, that yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. This is Temple of Doom I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. I'm dropping this weird yeah. reference for my listeners. I, oh, yeah. yeah. The, has, I, I wonder how many... Anyway, we don't need to talk about how seen Temple of Doom is, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty Good seen. example. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, you know, you've got this thing where immediately she rejects Mother as, or the new Mother, yeah. Mother Replacement, as obscene, mm. as, yeah. you know, just out of bounds. And uh, has what she would think would be, again, I I think her auntie, and I never really gathered whether or not this is her mother's sister or if this is... Yeah, um, it's her mom's sister. Her mom's, mom's sister. sister. Okay, yeah, they talk yeah. about that when she's on writing the letter to her. On and the they show the wedding. Okay. Yeah, it's it's all, that's part of why she wants to go out to the country is reconnect that side of her yeah. family. So it's it's mommy again, yeah. right? Yeah. And, 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 but that sort of fantasized, you know... Uh, really sort of built up in strange ways sort of mother figure turns out itself to be monstrous in the fact that she's a ghost and a witch yeah. or whatever she is. Yeah. Um, I guess a ghost technically, but there's, there's some real witchy kind of vibes I get off of her as well. Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, so, and then recovery of the real stepmom who ends up stepping in like a hero at the end. Um, though all of her friends are dead and somehow that's okay. Well, I don't think she's going to be, no, I don't think, Stepmom's okay. I think stepmom is toasted. I think stepmom is brunch. Is, yeah. is stepmom eaten too? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, dude. Because yeah. her yeah. friends are going to wake up and they're going to be hungry. And they're yeah. going to be hungry and they're going to eat her, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. It, Auntie has just like taken possession of Gorgeous's body. Yeah, right. Gorgeous yeah. is gone. They are one. Yeah, which is why we get so many good like double exposures, right? And yeah. dissolves between the right. two of the okay. stuff. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, oh god, what's that movie? Um, yeah, Hitchcock. There's a 40 or 50s film that I can't ever. I've, no, I'm supposed to see. That's uh, very much a uh, uses that kind of dissolving from one face to another. I think Bergman's in it. Somebody is screaming at their iPhone or their car speakers right, right now because they know what I'm talking about. 
anyway, not important. But, but the point being, though, is, is that sort of just trauma and the recovery of yes. it and the neurosis and the way in which, again, she embraces her symptom. I mean, that's that's the thing I was going to come yeah. to. You know, the title of the Zizek sure. book is Enjoying Your Symptom, right? And that she decides that she just loves being sick. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's any more we want to say about it than that, but... Yeah, I don't know. If there is, but it is kind of a an interesting place where the film ends up, right? It is just uh, letting it be that kind of downer ending. Somebody mm-hmm. who is embracing the, the being a ghost and being sick. Yeah, yeah. it's good stuff. It's wild. Um, okay, do we want to talk about just the the team, the troop? Oh, girls, they're I'm fun. Gonna, yeah, I they're mean, fun. I wouldn't even call them. You know, they don't even get to be archetypes, really. I mean, they're they're just they're, characteristics. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the film. Goes out of its way aggressively to let you know that up top, right? Like, it's yeah, like, I mean, I, just giving them those names. I know the... that these characters are non-characters. Yeah. I promise you, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, because so... they're all named after their hobby or their yeah, their got... their character, their traits. There's yeah. seven of them. They've got names that describe what their deal is. Guess what? Kung Fu. She's the fighter. Prof. You guessed it. It's the one with the glasses who's smart. Yeah. yeah Melody. Like... Guess what she does? Yep. Plays the music. Exactly. It <laughs> is Mac a, likes to eat. It's a seven dwarf situation <laughs> yeah. because it is supposed to be a fable. Yeah. Like, and I, I appreciate the film letting you know right up top. Yeah. Yeah. These it's very char- fairy tale nature. Yep. Yeah. These characters are not going to be super well developed because they are here. They they are here to exist as a, a state. Well, archetype is probably the wrong word. Uh, yeah. But you know, like rep, they're a, rep, a vague representation of. I mean, a they're type symbols. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Because they don't even need to be archetypes because the film is no. not even that interested in character. Yeah. Oh, well, sometimes I'm curious if they aren't all aspects of Gorgeous herself. Well, that's fun and interesting. You know? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah. I think, I sure. think that's a fun way to read it. Yeah, but I mean, that, that she herself is like solely being subsumed into and, finally the and ego. Shattered down. and, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Breaking the pieces and can being consumed by the house. I had a thought. I like uh, that reading. I don't know. I, uh, I li- no, it makes sense. Yeah, it's fun to chop yeah. up the psyche stuff. No, yeah. I agree. No, I, I like that a lot. Well, you know, Max yeah, yeah, got is got the glutton thing going on. Kung Fu's got the springing into action thing going on. Yeah. Right? They've all got something. Fantasy's boy crazy. Melody. Right. Yeah. Well, that's fantasy and fantasy's boy crazy, but also thinks a man is going to be useful and come save her. Which, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Have you met a man? Come on. Yeah. Hey. I think you know. I think the film does a great job of circumventing that because exactly. that's what it leads you to think is like, oh, when Mister Togo gets here, yeah. the day is safe. And they do a whole bit. Lol, of, he's a banana. They do a whole bit about how stupid that is, like right in the scene where they suggest it too. Yeah. It's so funny. It's great. Uh, yeah, God, the, the banana sculpture of him at the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had this a thought. Peak cinema. We were talking about the jokes. We we're talking about like how kind of heady this film can get, right? When because there is no plot, you can't really kind of read whatever you want into it um, outside of. Well, I not you shouldn't read whatever you want into it, right? You should look at the subtext and try to figure out if there's anything there. But you can read a lot into it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but the comedy uh, to kind of address these horrors, right? Uh, the, this mixture of tones, and again, knowing about the the emotional background of the production, right? Knowing that it is rooted in in real life trauma, it made me think about this film. I don't know if you guys are aware of it. Come and see. Do you know about this movie? It's a Soviet era film. It's it's Sounds not a Russian. Familiar. Oh, it's the war film. It's well, it's the war being a strong word for it. Yeah, it's the war uh, atrocity film. I know. Yeah. Tro- I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar. You're familiar with it. Yeah, it's yeah. from the eighties. Uh, Very hard to watch, from what I gather. It's, it's kind of solo esque. Okay, it's a little bit more grounded than that, right? Like it is a. It's just you know some people who were from. I want to say Belarus, but I can't remember, and I feel bad that I don't know off the top of my dome. Sure. Soviet bloc country in the 80s, they make a film about the Nazi occupation and what a shit show it was. And then, like, 
I think it does even deal a little bit with the Soviet occupation right after that. Mm. I can't remember. This is a film that I only kind of know of secondhand, but it is a lot through a child's eyes. It's a lot of, I think they killed a real horse too. Uh, just mm. a lot of like really intense stuff because it is a film about being under, being occupied by a fascist force and it wants to deal with it. And as you know, obviously it's also, it's a Soviet film set in, you know, made in the eighties. So it's about reclaiming that glory of standing up to fascism. Right. Um, so obviously it's got that, that political motivation to be a kind of a different, more realistic and more grounded film than house. But you know they're only separated by about a decade, right? Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious, what do we think about? Again, we watched The Nightingale last year, another film that deals with historical atrocity and deals with it in as grounded and bleak and unflinching uh, terms as it possibly could, right? So there's lots of I, I'm just bringing up these different examples to say there's lots of different ways to to deal with both societal and personal traumas. Um, and it is very interesting, uh, horror either, you know, whether it's a, like a grounded, realistic war horror, uh, or, you know, kind of a more heady and surreal way to look at it. There's those two ways to go about it. And there's, you know, serious versus comedic versus something in, in between. I just, I'm wondering, thinking about films that we've watched either for the show or on our own, does either approach appeal to you more? Is either more effective? Is there a reason to go for one versus the other based on subject matter? No, just... And again, it's, it's kind of a, an open-ended question. It's just something I wanted to think about. I would say, why pick a favorite flavor of ice cream? Um, sure. Why, I, you know, and that, that really, I come down to that because sure. I do think the comedic take on that kind of horror is fun and it's useful, useful and yeah. meditative and healing. But also the sort of, you know, I'm just barefaced. I'm, we're just going to we're, we're going to unflinchingly gaze upon the open abyss of nothing and let the abyss look back at us. That also is useful and healing and redemptive. And so I, I, I like that horror has that kind of range. I mean, that's what the thing that we talk about with horror and that's what mm. quote-unquote elevated horror discussion is really all about is that horror doesn't have any range. It's about one emotion, and it's not. No. And it hasn't been. People who think that haven't had anything bad happen to them in real life, uh, and that's why they don't know how to watch horror movies. That's right. my theory. Uh, I don't know if that holds any water. I, I think, to Dustin's point, I, I, I think for me it, it's, you know, all comes down to what is the film trying to achieve. Yeah, sure. I, I think something like The Nightingale uh, feels like it's much more educational in, in that regard. It, yeah. it feels like it's trying to be like, hey, this is what happened. It sucked, and things really haven't changed in some ways. There's something documentary to it. Yeah. It's fiction. Yeah, yeah. even Fireflies, right, is another Japanese film that yeah. deals the bomb, but it's animated, but it is like, no, people had friends that died. And it sucked. And I think to your point, you know, this film House is very much, uh, you know, a studio project with a, a director trying to make a name, essentially, uh, and, and doing it. I think you've tapped into it. He's he is trying to work through a personal grief, and I, and I think that comes through in a way because, like you mentioned, uh, the survivors of the bomb. You know, it was like watching a cartoon. And I think sometimes when when things just go awry at every conceivable way at the worst. Sometimes all you can do is just laugh because your mind can't comprehend. And that's why I think, you know, comedy and horror can intertwine. Sometimes comedy is obviously used for levity. I think of Get Out. Yeah. Where the comedy is solely there, I think, for levity. And when you're, you know, let your defenses down because you're laughing, boom, I can hit again. Yeah. I think this is a movie where the comedy reinstates the unease. It's because I'm, I'm laughing because I don't know what's going to go wrong. And yeah. I, I don't know... How else to cope with this just other than to laugh? I mean, everything feels, and sometimes in life it's like everything feels like it's a dream. Like none of this can be real, and all I can do is laugh. And I think that's what 
this yeah, works like. And I, I, I don't know if the, the film that's come to mind for me as we were talking is going to make sense to you guys, but I'm thinking about Schindler's List a lot. Yeah. That's a movie that has a lot of fucking jokes. Uh, and I don't know if you guys know this real famous story. That there's the, this group of inner city kids. I think it's in LA. It's not important where it was. The the racial politics of this will become apparent in a in a moment. That's why I mentioned it was an inner city school. Uh, kids go on a field trip and they laugh a shit ton at uh, saying or almost called saying Private Ryan. They laugh a shit ton at Schindler's List. Not just at the jokes, but at some of the like the very matter of fact violence that happens in that film. Um, and they went, obviously, to some, you know, upscale theater, and all the Karens complained, and Steven Spielberg ended up going to the high school. And what nobody had occurred, what had not occurred to anybody is that these are uh, young adults who have seen people get shot in the face in real life. Mm-hmm. The film is not jarring to them because they know what violence looks like. They're laughing because it's a funny movie, and when violence happens that is that aggressive and blatant in your face is you know some people have a different reaction to it and you know they're they interviewed i think this american life talked to some of the some of the kids that are adults now they just story about this not too long ago uh but yeah like it's not that these kids didn't understand the holocaust was bad it was just they had a different frame of reckoning with it than other people were uh, used to or had occurred it hadn't occurred to people that somebody might experience this a film like that that way and while you were talking about that art that's what made me think of it right is sometimes the jokes are there to kind of cut through the tension and you know, that's, I, I think that's probably why once Steven Spielberg talked to these kids, he realized that everybody made a whole bunch uh, something out of nothing. Because yeah. you don't put jokes in a movie like that unless you know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, and that movie's got... I don't know if you've seen it uh, recently, listener. It has more jokes than you remember. Yeah. That's uh, weird how many jokes there are, honestly. It's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. It's got bits. Like, it, they're, weir- it. they're weird bits where... And it's... I'm trying to think of a movie that is like as tense as House is silly, but it's. I mean, Get Out's a good example, right? Get Out has so many laughs in the like, not just uh, Ray Howard, who's obviously kind of the doing a lot of jokes in that film, being the the, the main comedic relief. Well, even Whitford. That's what I was about to say. Bradley Whitford has a lot of jokes that like exist yeah. within moments of tension to like keep you uncertain about how you're supposed to feel. And that's kind of how, like, Ray Fiennes being the, you know, the scary uber-Nazi of of Schindler's List is one of the characters that has a lot of the jokes because he's, like, a silly villain, which is a good archetype. Well, it's like Christoph Waltz in Inglourious Bastards. There you go. Same idea. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. This guy's incredibly menacing, but he still gets some jokes. Well, and I think probably Tarantino's cribbing a little bit there. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But it's super useful to mention. Tarantino, crib. Yeah, Never. Like, who, who, who? Who, him? Never. Uh, but Never heard of such. Again, I, it was listening to you guys kind of uh, reckon with that question that kind of connected these dots for me. But I, I think you're right. That 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 mixture of tones is super valuable. Um, and I think this film leans more into comedy than most films. That, again, horror comedy doesn't even describe this film right, though. Because it's not particularly funny. Right. It's just silly and wacky. Mm-hmm. Love the skeleton dancing, by the way. This, I, I keep thinking the bucket thing you mentioned off air. Oh, the, the bucket, bucket the bucket joke. bit. There's a Scooby Doo Benny Hill dance number in the house with Auntie. Yeah, where she's like tap dancing on beams. That's that's the part. And I'm there's talking about skeletons. skeletons. Yeah, and then she, and, that's where she does her uh, Bugs Bunny to camera. Yeah, and, and I I think you know this just it, it it you're right. I don't I feel like horror comedy is a weird place for it. I, I don't want to say musical comedy because or musical horror, because but I think there's some musical elements there. I think yeah. Quicker Man, uh, Saturday morning cartoon does feel it's it's a weird. I mean, it's Beetlejuice, right? I mean, sure, yeah. which kind of also has that marriage of 
cartoon and, and yeah, live action. Yeah. And, oh, and actually, that's way. a great example. Yeah. yeah but I, I I feel like that's really this zany zaniness of it, and it's hard to compare because you know Ty West is like this is a wholly original movie, and there's nothing else like it, and he's kind of right. He's not wrong. Yeah. yeah, and that's I mean I think there's a handful of movies we've used that descriptor for here on the show is there's just nothing else like it. Right. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's what you need sometimes to, uh, you need somebody who experienced something pretty intense and they want to talk about it and they don't really want to actually talk about the thing. They're just going to talk around it. And that's how you get movies that feel the singular, like something like the matrix, uh, a film all about talking around the thing that the thing is actually about. It turns out, or, uh, oh god, there was another one I was going to reference, and it's one we've already talked about. Oh, uh, she dies tomorrow. A film that is like largely about anxiety and was made before the pandemic, but was definitely made during a, a, a time of great uh, climatological catastrophe, and nobody's doing anything about it. It is a film all about that feeling of like everyday anxiety during you know late stage capitalism. But it's not really about that at all. It's just kind of about a thought virus that kills you, right? right? It's a it's a it's a follows situation. It follows a film that. You know, when we talked about it on this show, that was all we talked about, was all the things that that film's probably about, despite never using any uh, word, uh, not saying the words STI or assault or rape. Right. Like, that is when films become one of a kind, is Mm -hmm. when they use, again, Scooby-Doo tricks. They use stop-motion gags with a bucket to talk about the damn bomb. Um, and I don't know, Arthur had to roast me more than once about a, a bit when I was a younger man on this podcast that I thought was very cute was to call everybody in Japan a pervert because of uh, the existence of tentacle porn and the fisherman's wife. Goodness. Not a cute bit. Not a fun bit. Not, I Look, I'm an older person now. It's not funny. But sometimes, you know, you got to like uh, appreciate the the cultural sensibilities of, somebody, of, of a, a, a nation's art to really start to think about uh, how they process the specificities of their experience and their history. And uh, I can't think of a movie that does it quite like House, other than, you know, a handful we've mentioned already. Right. Yeah. 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 Let's do it. All right. Well, very cool. Well, do we have any other big themes that we want to discuss before we run a revert? I think we're rendering think it right we took now. It Let's do it. Yeah. So, shelf or trash, Arthur, go. A shelf, easy. easy shelf. shelf. Yeah. Or, I don't okay. know if I've yeah. shelved a film easier this year. Same. I shelf, same. I, I like it a lot. So, there it, you go. Um, else like it, like we Say said. the words. What's next? Yeah, look, if you uh, want to know more about House, uh, or you know more about House and want to tell us about it, or you know, you just want to talk about movies in general, there's lots of ways to be part of what's happening. Uh, you can go to at good underscore trash on Twitter um, and uh, see uh, drops for the episodes as they're coming out. Uh, see uh, movie news that we're retweeting and keeping our eyes on or being interested in. And, you know, the DMs are open. Let us know if you uh, had an episode that you had issues with or uh, had a question or a comment or concern. All of those things. Uh, while you're over at good underscore trash, you can also keep an eye out for the other shows here at the Good Trash Media Network that show up uh, in that Twitter feed that we post. Shows like The Praise Down, which you can follow at The Praise Down on Twitter, and uh, Wheel of Randy, uh, which I think is at Wheel Randy on Twitter. Sounds right. It's in our it's in our bio. Uh, but, you know, two very fun shows, both on this network. Uh, both, uh, you know, if you listen to this show, there's somebody, there, if you've listened to this show for a long time, I promise you, uh, listening to either one of those other shows, there'll be people you've heard of before showing up. It's a good time for everyone. Uh, you can also send us long-form feedback, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com, if you really want to send us your uh, your thesis on how to. 
um, please, by all means, let it take a look at it. We're more than happy. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, do those things. You, you know how that works. You've heard of a podcast before. Uh, finally, you can go to uh, podbean.com forward slash GTM uh, to, uh, you know, help us keep the lights on, but also to get some cool stuff for yourself. We'll send you a coffee mug. You can listen to Dustin and I uh, play a Monster of the Week campaign led by Arthur. Uh, it's, it's a fun time for the whole family. Well, probably not the whole family, but a good chunk of the family. Um, yeah, I think that's everything. Yeah. What's next? Oh, what's next? Well, we will be continuing this very spooky month and getting extra spooky. Uh, we'll be getting as weird and as gross as we did silly this week, next week, when we look at the David Cronenberg film, Dead Ringers. Excellent. I'm so pumped to be talking about this movie. I no, love Cronenberg, and it's a Cronenberg blind spot for me. That's what I was about to ask. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. That's, I think it's a blind spot for all of us. Uh, yes. Uh, huge content warnings up top yeah. already. We're going to go ahead and week in advance on this one. We'll mention it again next week, I'm sure. But uh, from what I do know about this film is it's icky, icky, skicky. Yep. No good. Sounds about right. So there you go, dear listener. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.